Welcome to the Basic Biology Podcast. With me, James Conway. And me, Charlie Blake. So, uh, since this is the first episode, I thought we'd just start off with some nice introductions about uh, what we've been doing in the past, what we're doing now, what we're up to in the future, and what this programme is going to be about over the next, uh, however long we're doing it for, every week, I guess. So, I'm James, as I've just said, and I am currently a, doing a Master's in Molecular Neuroscience at the University of Bristol. I'm currently on a, a gap year. I'm doing a master's in September, hopefully in sports science. We both met at university. Um, we both studied biology. And yeah, just we're lab partners one day and now we're best of buds, aren't we? Yes, we are. Um, we are biology buddies, as it were. Indeed. So we're just going to let you know uh, roughly what this is going to be about, what you've just jumped on board for. So. As we have already made clear, we both did a, uh, a Bachelor of Science in Biological Sciences, which we finished last year. So we've got a bit of an idea about what we're talking about, hopefully. So uh, we think we're probably going to aim this podcast at sort of anyone who's got a general interest in biological science, but we've both kind of got our own interest within that. As I said, I'm doing a neuroscience master's now, so I, I'll be talking a, bit, a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm more interested in uh, sports science, uh, nutrition... Um, more, more sort of human based although I do find some ecology stuff interesting especially the environmental stuff um, but yeah it's kind of we're going to talk about a range of different topics um, so I'm sure there's something for everyone that's good well I hope you enjoy it so uh, what have you been up to well so I've just found out what my my, my summer project I'm going to be doing for my masters is so my masters is a 12 month course uh, of which I'm about seven months in at the moment uh, and the final three months so from the end of next month onwards end of May 2019 I'm going to be doing a lab-based project and I don't know if you've you may have seen recently on if you're in Britain on the BBC there was a drug trial documentary on called the Parkinson's drug trial so about Parkinson's disease and it's a study based in Bristol at Southmead Hospital uh, and these guys have figured out that there's potentially this product called GDNF, which, for those of you interested, stands for glial-derived neurotrophic factor, which is it's a growth factor in the brain, so it helps cells to grow and nourishes them. And they think that this is able to rescue the neurons or the brain cells which die in Parkinson's disease. So uh, my project is going to be based around that. Now, if you did watch the documentary, then you may have seen that the drug trial supposedly on paper didn't actually work, although the symptoms that they saw, uh, the improvements in the symptoms that they saw in the patients was actually, you could tell that there was something going on there. Uh, there was no actual statistical way of showing whether that was due to the placebo effect or not, but there are now further studies to try and show that maybe it wasn't due to the placebo effect. Um, so my exact pro uh, project is based on kind of a combination therapy where they're going to give 
cells from a mouse brain, GDNF, this substance, uh, and something called microRNA as well. And I'm going to combine that and see if that helps to rescue the neurons. So that's enough about me for now, I think. That's, uh, that's all exciting stuff in the future. So what have you been up to recently then, Charlie? Uh, so I've kind of used this gap year opportunity to do things that I've always wanted to do but I haven't got around to doing before. I've been too busy doing um, so one of those goals was to run a marathon. Um, so I ran that the Brighton Marathon on Sunday. Um, I didn't have the fastest time in the world, but it was my first marathon, and it was um, I'm glad that I've done it. So at the moment, my body's still kind of in shock. I think it takes a, probably about four or five days, maybe even a week, to like recover from it. My legs are kind of a bit better now. It's a little bit achy the days after. Just going up and down the stairs was the, the main issue. But, yeah, apart from that, not much, really. So, going back to the marathon, then, did you find that... Uh, where, where, where did you find the hardest parts were in the, in the 26.2 miles that you had to run? Uh, so, the first... So, the furthest I've run before the marathon was 19 miles. Um, so, I've not actually run over 20 miles before. Um, I, I did find when I got to 20, that was when I did start to struggle. Um... And then at 23 miles, my headphones went out of charge, my Bluetooth headphones. So the last three miles was just, yeah, just seeing yeah, what I was made of, really. And, yeah, fortunately, I was able to finish. Um, and then even after, that, one of the hardest parts of the day, actually, was um, we parked the car uh, about half a mile away from the start line. But the start of the Brighton Marathon is, like, quite far away from the finish. Um, it's about two or three miles different, so I had to walk uphill for three miles uh, back to the car after running Disgusting. 26 miles, which is not ideal, but yeah, yeah, it's good and I think I'm just sort of starting to get back to myself now, I'll probably start hitting leg day again soon. Don't skip leg day. Did you find that uh, those last three miles where there, there wasn't any music, do you think that the music is uh, helps you to run long distances? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely find it helps, um, just with any exercise in general. Um, just sort of takes your mind off things, and I don't know, I think it can allow you to sort of get into a flow state where you just, you're not really thinking too much about what else is, what else is going on in your life. You just sort of focus on um, what you're doing and the gym, and or what, if you're running, whatever, that's kind of your main focus. But um, I don't know, I think that's obviously extrinsic motivation, I think... You know, in those those last three miles, I kind of like thought about who I was running for and um, all the people that supported me and uh, the, the money I'd raised for charity and everyone that donated and you know those sort of things and more sort of intrinsic stuff. Yeah, you should point out you didn't mention before you are running. You were running the marathon for the the Alzheimer's Society. Yes. Yeah. So um, I think we've raised I think just over two hundred pounds so far. Um, going to keep the donations open till. Probably at the end of next week. So what I'll do when this when this podcast goes out is I'll stick the uh, donation link for Charlie's Marathon if you wish to support him in that. So we'll, we'll go into a good cause. The Alzheimer's Society is one of the big the big Alzheimer's Society a uh, big Alzheimer's causes uh, funding the research and you can't really do the research without the money. So I've actually just written a grant proposal myself to it's the Dementia Trust. It's the other other big one um, to try and get some money for for some research. So. That's what the scientists do. So often you get people who say, "Oh, uh, I don't give to charities because there's just there's loads of people making making money off of it." And 
Although I'm not going to say that isn't true. I think it's really it's the only way at the moment that we're ever going to get close to uh, curing these diseases because that's the only way that, that, that the scientists can actually get the money is through these charities. There's no actual direct route at the moment of donating directly to labs, as it were. And also, if, if there, even there were, then how would you know where to, where to give the money to? Because, you know, there could be some really novel avenue of research which uh, the, the person with the money doesn't know about uh, and the person who's doing the research doesn't have any money and then you end up at back at square one again. So I would really urge you to give to these uh, these charities that are really going to uh, help maybe yourself in the future, you know, or, or your family members. That's what you've got to think about. Okay, so in this next section of our podcast, we'd like to talk about what's currently been in the news in biological sciences this week. Charlie's got one for you where he's going to talk about, uh, about some ecology Some ecology stuff. news. Yay. Uh, so... The first, well, scientists have discovered the world's tallest tropical tree in Malaysia. Um, the funny thing when I clicked on this article is it's tagged as Nottingham, and I was thinking, surely if the world's tallest tropical tree could be in one, for one, for one, it wouldn't be tropical, yeah. and yeah, two, it wouldn't be Nottingham, where someone would have realised. But um, yeah, so what happened was some people from the University of Nottingham went to Borneo last year and were sort of carrying out 3D scans on the trees in the tropical forests. And, um, yeah, they found the world's tallest tree, which is the same, it was 100 metres tall, 320 feet high, 328 feet high, sorry, um, which is, like, the same as a football pitch. And, uh, yeah, so, I don't know. I mean, how how tall can a tree grow? That's the uh, the age old question. Well, there's a few few factors that would determine that, aren't there? There's the, of course, the available nutrients... There we got the 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 cover of of the canopy. The biotic and abiotic factors. Indeed. Uh, Anybody yeah. who's uh, studied some some GTFC biology or A level biology in the last few years, or even before that, would would be familiar with that. If you're more interested in that sort of thing, it's worth worth checking out. I think the weird thing about like when a, a tree is that tall is that the environment at the top of the tree is going to be completely different to. The environment at the bottom of the tree. It's actually beneficial to a tree to not be not be the tallest in the in the habitat because if you've got something taller, then that's going to take all the brunt of the the weather and all of the, yeah, the animals. Yeah, because it on the one hand, heat rises, so you think, oh, it's going to be hotter at the top, yeah. but obviously then it's exposed to the wind as well, which is obviously going to cool it down. It is. Yeah, so hopefully some more research will be done by the University of Nottingham to figure out, you know, how. How tall can a, gr- a tree grow? Right, so I'm going to move on now to talk about something that I found in the news recently. So this is a bit of a kind of overlap between my area of interest and Charlie's. So it's a bit of neuroscience and a bit of sports science as well. So we, the headline here that I found is that experimental PET scan detects tau protein in NFL players. So if you're not familiar, uh, as I wasn't until quite recently, the NFL is the... National Football League, John? Yes. In America? Yes. So this is the American football players. Um, So let me break that headline down. So we've got the PET scanners, first of all. So that stands for positron emission tomography, which is a kind of brain imaging. So you can kind of see proteins and other compounds within the brain from uh, a brain that is still alive. So it's kind of like a CT scan, if you're familiar with that, or a CAT scan. Uh, And they've detected this thing called tau in the brains of these NFL players. So tau is found uh, it's, it's found throughout healthy cells as well, 
but this type of tau that they found is actually uh, pathogenic, so it's disease-causing form of tau. So tau is found in Alzheimer's brains. That's quite it's quite common to find. It's one of the one of the key factors in Alzheimer's brains. It's um, so as I say, it's in the in the microtubules normally, but when it becomes phosphorylated, it clumps together, forms these uh, protein aggregates, these tau aggregates, and then that eventually ends up causing cell death. So that's not a good thing to have. So they found it in these NFL players. So this is not necessarily a new phenomenon because they do find tau in a lot of people with who play contact sports. Yeah, boxers, uh, a lot of combat athletes, or com- yeah, rugby players, fighters. Things like that. Yeah, but I think it comes back to that question that you know, does the padding really help? Because as far as I'm aware, I mean, I don't have any data to back this up, but as far as I'm aware. CTE is more common among American football players than it is in rug, uh, rugby players. So C- um, CTE standing for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is yes. just long-term traumatic, kind of explains itself, and encephalopathy is just a problem with the head or the brain. And I think this has been a topic before uh, with the NFL where, they, where they've discussed whether helmets and all the padding and stuff is really a good idea because... Although you think it's protecting the the players, um, all it really does is allow them to have harder impacts. Um, it's the same in fighting as well. There's a big discussion at the moment between what glove sizes are the best um, for the health of the fighters. Um, obviously, boxers tend to have quite big gloves. Uh, mixed martial artists have smaller gloves, and then there's even some organisations that have bare knuckle fighting. And obviously, the only thing is with bigger gloves is that you can hit a lot harder um, without breaking your hand whereas with smaller gloves if you hit the wrong bone or the wrong angle you can have like slight fractures so you can't hit quite as hard so yeah I think it's just it's difficult to say it's interesting as well because the way that tau is found in the in the brain uh, in these two pathologies in CTE and in Alzheimer's disease is different so the uh, the CTE, you would normally find tau in sort of patchy areas around blood vessels, which you would expect if you were getting hit in the head a lot. You might get sort of vascular injuries, things like that. Whereas Alzheimer's, you would get that, um, it's kind of backwards version of CTE development. So you would find that deep in the brain, deep in the midbrain. You know, the, the, often people start uh, develop, developing Alzheimer's, they end up with memory issues, and that's because the hippocampus is being affected in the midbrain. Uh, so this is this CTE is the other way around. So it'd be interesting to see if these this CTE actually ends up resulting in Alzheimer's later in life as well, because you know it's not unusual to see former boxers um, and former rugby players and former NFL players ending up with Alzheimer's. Uh, and it'd be interesting to see whether that is more common than in other people of their age or not. Really. But um, there was a, a film, I can't remember what the film was called now, um, about the the doctor that um, first discovered the brain trauma in the NFL. Um, it's a really good film, I can't remember what it's called. Um, but in that, a lot of the um, ex-NFL uh, players were actually committing suicide and you know, were going through a lot of uh, addiction and a lot of other mental mental issue mental health issues because of the damage they have received to their brain so a lot of those athletes were still quite young and never would have made it to the 
the sort of Alzheimer's associated age. That's true. It's that difficult true. to tell. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. You normally get um, with CTE patients. I read a study not too long ago, about six months ago, um, that was carried out in Washington, uh, and it was on brains of adolescents, and they'd undergone CTE or some sort of big brain injury in uh, sort of mid adolescence, and then by the time that they were kind of reaching about 25 years old, uh, a, a good number of them, sort of 10, 20% of them, had uh, actually committed suicide. So it's interesting to see the comorbidities with these, this CTE. I think it's certainly worth researching. And the uh, the film was called Concussion. It had Will Smith in it, just remembered. Good. Go and check that one out if you're interested. Okay, so in sports science news, the UFC bantamweight champion has just tested positive for uh, EPO and has been banned for two years. Uh, EPO, for those who don't know, is actually called erythropoietin. Um, it's a chemical that increases red blood cell production in the body, uh, which obviously helps with recovery, helps with cardiovascular uh, elements. Um, it just generally increases the uh, increases the number of red blood cells in your system. So, if you've got more of those, obviously uh, the the red blood cells or erythrocytes they're uh, they're responsible for uh, oxygen transport, not your CO two. So. Uh, it's not going to help with recovery as much, but it does does a little bit. Uh, but yeah, these uh, these red blood cells they carry your oxygen. So if you can get oxygen from your lungs into your tissues for respiration quicker, then that means that you're basically an advantage because you can carry out more respiration and therefore you've got essentially more available energy, more ATP um, to be breaking down into into energy to use when you're doing your sports. So in this case, it'd be for boxing. So I guess you could probably... Mixed martial arts, mate. Mixed martial arts. That's the one. Uh, So, yeah, he's... um, The irony in this case is that he got knocked out in 32 seconds. So any cardiovascular gain he was hoping to have, he wouldn't have had. So, um, yeah, karma, I guess. It is karma. Just don't don't do the drugs. Um, EPO was made famous by... um, It's used by Lance Armstrong during his Tour de France wins. Um, so that's kind of where you might may have heard it before. Um, obviously, there is more of a moral question when it comes to combat sports and doping because if you're hitting someone in the head and you've you're enhanced, um, you don't know what like what effect that's going to have. Like we just discussed in the previous um, the previous example. previous topic, yeah. So um, there's more of a moral question. I mean, even today, there's still a lot of people that try and defend. Lance Armstrong for doping and saying that everyone else was doing it and you know what harm did it really do but you know you don't really know what harm it's going to do and if you're going to take a risk to to do a um, a banned substance like this guy did then what other risks are you going to take um, you know where does it where does it stop you know you there's obviously a lot of these chemicals are banned for a reason other than just performance it's often to do with health factors and you know EPO if, if you take too much of it it can cause strokes and all sorts so. it is interesting though because uh, just to note that erythropoietin is actually naturally occurring in the body and do these people who are very good at sports naturally have more EPO I'm not no that's why it used to be so hard to test and that was why Lance got away with doing it for so many years um, and now they they can actually track down particular molecules that aren't found naturally that 
um, would only be found if you injected it. So there's no chance of saying you had a tainted supplement or you ingested it through another means, another like healthy means. You would have had to inject it into your body. And yeah, that was why yeah Lance got away with it for so many years before they sort of improved their scientific techniques and uh, started to use biological passports and blood passports and um, stuff like that to check that you weren't blood doping or using EPA. Before that, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have known. Well, it's good that we've got the technology now. So uh, I think we have reached the end of our our first ever basic biology podcast i hope you've enjoyed it and i hope you'll join us again next time whenever that is we'll see you next time see you later goodbye